Uh, you all are in for an unbelievable blessing today. I've known our guest Bible teacher since he was a kid. His father and I have been close friends for almost 25 years. His dad, Crawford Loritz, is one of the greatest minds in evangelicalism. But far more importantly, Crawford and his wonderful wife, Karen, are remarkable parents. And they raised all of their kids to live their lives for something bigger than themselves and someone greater than life. And Brian Loritz is, is their firstborn son. He's one of the top young guns of our country. Pastors from all over the world go to his website every week to listen to his most recent message. They don't go there primarily because of the style of his delivery, even though he's in a league of his own. They go there to hear what he's thinking. There are many good preachers that deliver their message as well, but there are only a handful who have those cutting edge, leading edge minds that God uses to actually frame the church at large. And Brian Loritz is one of those rare few. He's the pastor of Fellowship Memphis, a multicultural church ministering to the evolving community of the city of Memphis. He leads a church that is committed to living out the gospel as well as reflecting the racial, socioeconomic, and generational diversity of that amazing city. And because of the way this man thinks, as well as his unique ability to communicate the deep truths of Scripture, God is using him in a grand way to reach a generation embedded in postmodernism. He's married to a fabulous woman, Corey, and has three fine sons, Quentin, Miles, and Jaden. Scottsdale Bible, please join me in welcoming Brian Loritz. You can leave that picture up there. I tell you, I, that kind of ambushes me this morning. My, my youngest is actually on my wife's neck, Jaden, and um, his spiritual gift is eating. And um, I've already got it figured out. When he comes to me in his 20s maybe and asks me, uh, so dad, how do you know? I think I've met this girl. I think she's the one. How do you know she's the one? I'm going to tell him, son, when you can look into her eyes the way you look into my refrigerator, uh, she's the one. So... Uh, but man, I, I, I love this. I can go on and on and on uh, about them. But I, I, I love Tim Kimmel, and my kids love Kimmel as well. Uh, when Tim came uh, to do um, one of his grace-based parenting uh, weekends uh, in, in, our, in our city, we, we took him, our family did, out to eat uh, at Rendezvous, which is the big ribs joint uh, in Memphis. And, uh, and Tim was teaching my three boys how to moonwalk in the middle of the rendezvous. I hope that didn't get them in trouble, but they absolutely said, can you please tell, they call him Grandpa Tim. They've got a white grandfather. Can you please tell Grandpa Tim? We said, we said hello. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, could you meet me in Matthew chapter uh, 25 as you're turning there? Again, as Tim said, I, am, I have the joy of being lead pastor of Fellowship Memphis Church in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm often asked the question, Brian, of all the places you could have picked to plant a church, why Memphis, Tennessee? And outside of the obvious, hey, God just led us there, um, one of the interesting things about Memphis, um, I, call, I call Memphis Elder Brotherville. Uh, I, I call it the buckle of the Bible belt. They say the average city has one church per thousand people. Memphis has two. Huge church towns, the hub for the Church of God in Christ, strong Southern Baptist presence, strong Church of Christ presence there. And yet for as religious as Memphis is, she's also known for her deep-seated racism 
She's also known for um, high crime, one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country, and one of the most deplorable school systems in the country as well. And so Memphis is a glaring illustration of the absolute impotence of religion. Religion cannot change a culture. And so we tried to come with a different operating system. Instead of religion leaning on our good works, leaning on the fact that I don't see certain movies, leaning on the fact that I don't, um, you know, spit or chew or date girls that do, leaning, leaning on the fact that I don't do all this other stuff. Well, why don't we come with the operating system of the gospel that says in Christ, in Christ alone, and the absolute liberty of that. And so we're a gospel-centered, disciple-making, racially diverse church. Um, when we first started, we started with 26 people. I was the only piece of chocolate in the bunch. And, uh, and now seven years later, there's about 1,500 of us. We're 65% white, 35% African-American, and God is doing some incredible, incredible things in our city. And we're just so happy to be a part of what God's doing. Uh, l- let me just say this before before I get to our text this morning. One of the things that I'm passionate about at our church, uh, we believe uh, that God's placed us uh, in Memphis, among other things, to be a launching pad uh, to plant multi-ethnic churches across the Mid-South. That's, that's what, what we want to do. We also want to see a renaissance in the black church. Um, I, I, I love the Church of Jesus Christ in general. I also have a heart for the black church. There's just a lot of mess happening. Some of us have seen the news, so on and so forth. But there's just a, a real renaissance needed. And yet the problem is I meet these African African-American young leaders all across the country all the time who want to get to seminaries, who want to get to Bible colleges, but don't have the economic means. And so what we do is we've got a farm system at the church. We find these young guns. Many of them are African-Americans. We pay for 100% of their schooling. In return, they give us three years of interning with us, learning how to do ministry, and then we launch them out. And several of them are going to be planting churches this year right in the city of Memphis. Others of them are going across the Mid-South to plant churches. Some are going back into existing churches. One just got hired uh, at a well-known church in Southern California. And God's using us to do great things. Now, the, the economic engine that we use to support that, and, and let, let me just share this with you, is, is, is our CD ministry, our media ministry. And we brought some CDs here for sale. And I want you to know, if you decide to buy one, that goes right into these guys' pockets so that they can afford to go to seminary. But one young man named Chris Davis, 25 years old, his father's been locked up since he was two years of age. His mother dropped out of school when she was in eighth grade, and he came to me the other day, he's 25 years old, with tears in his eyes, saying, thank you, Brian, I'm graduating from seminary, the first person in my family to do that. And so God's having a significant... A significant impact. So that's where your money goes today uh, if you were to, to uh, decide to uh, invest in one of those CDs. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Uh, I see that there's a timer on me, which for a black preacher is like kryptonite, but we're going to try to hustle through this. Um, Matthew 25, pick me up in verse 31. Familiar passage of scripture. Uh, we'll read it, lift up a few thoughts, and then sit down. This is Jesus talking. Hear these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Verse 35, for I was hungry... 
and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, or naked, as they say in Memphis, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. On October 28, 1787, a young parliamentarian etched these words in his diary. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. That man's name was William Wilberforce. Oh, dear Christian, if you have not drunk deeply from the well of his life, please do so. His story has been well documented. At the age of 21, William Wilberforce and William Pitt are at a party, and on a lark, on a whim, they say, let's run for Parliament. Drawing on their abundant resources, they, they, they run for Parliament, and they win. And William Wilberforce would never lose his seat in Parliament for the rest of his life. Fast forward now, four years. William Wilberforce is now 25 years of age. At the age of 25, William Wilberforce comes to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Yet it's at this crossroads in his life that he has um, hit a conundrum. He says, I'm 25 years old, I'm a new follower of Jesus Christ, he's got a hold of my heart, and then he looks at the other part of his life, he says, yet I give leadership to a nation that is thriving off of the social evil of slavery. How can I reconcile these two things? Uh, Wilberforce sort of shrugs his shoulders and he says, I, I can't reconcile these two. I can't claim to follow Jesus with any kind of integrity and yet give leadership to a nation that is thriving off of slavery. Before he turns in his resignation papers, uh, he decides to see his mentor, and we know who that is, John Newton. Pulls up at Newton's house, shares his conundrum with Newton. Newton, I, there's no way I can do this. I'm 25 years of age. I, I follow Jesus Christ. And, and yet I've got this whole evil social injustice issue that I'm dealing with over here. I, I know I've got to quit. And yet Newton would say these words to Wilberforce. Words that would not only change the trajectory of his life, but these words would change the trajectory of human history. It is hoped and believed, young Wilberforce, that the Lord has raised you up for the good of the nation. 
In other words, Newton says, Wilberforce, if you want to make a difference, it doesn't mean you've got to leave your post in parliament, leave your post in the marketplace, and go to seminary. That is totally unbiblical. And I'm here to say to anyone here today, by way of application, one of the worst messages we as church leaders send the body of Christ is that the varsity section of the kingdom happens when you quit your job at American Express, when you quit your job at Starbucks, when you quit your job in the marketplace, and then you go to Phoenix Bible and Seminary. That's the real varsity. No, that doesn't jive with Scripture. You can make as much of an impact for the kingdom, if not more, at American Express or whatever post in the marketplace you have. These words now strengthen Wilberforce. Seeing his work as a viable venue to advance the purposes of God, Wilberforce stands before Parliament, it's Christmas 1787, and he says these words, my great cause is the abolition of the trade, all others are secondary, I will not rest until I have effected its abolition. And they're quiet, just like you. By the way, um, you can talk to me, that doesn't bother me. Uh, Say amen, preach it, brother, that lets me know you're getting it. I move a little faster when you're ready for me to end. Say, bring it home, something. (laughs) For the next 20 years, Wilberforce hits wall after wall after wall. On top of that, he's attacked, sometimes beaten to within an inch of his life. And then finally, on February 24th, 1807, England votes to abolish the trade. Footnote, at a party that evening, it's a festive occasion. Someone comes up to Wilberforce and says sarcastically, now that the trade is abolished, what will you do? And without flinching, Wilberforce says, I will look for something else to abolish. 26 years later, three days before Wilberforce dies, 1833, England declares slavery, not just the trade, illegal. 32 years later, rippling across the Atlantic in these here United States, 1865, the 13th Amendment is ratified, and one of the beneficiaries, one of the ones who was influenced by that was a, was a little slave by the name of Peter Loritz, who worked the plantations in Asheville, North Carolina, and now 100 and plus years later, The reason why I am in Memphis, Tennessee not picking cotton is because a 25-year-old white man said, I cannot relegate my faith to an hour and some change on Sunday mornings. I must do something. And I have no doubt that when we get to heaven, We will see Wilberforce, not among the goats, but using Matthew 25, 31 to 46 as a lens over his life, we shall see him among the sheep, for he lived his life for the least of these. Scottsdale Bible Church, on this benevolent Sunday, you do it every third Sunday of the month, I want to encourage you this morning to engage the less fortunate 
I've got two points this morning. I know a good preacher preaches in threes, but I've got two. But before I go any further, will you indulge me in a word of prayer? Father, now would you speak to our hearts? These people, they don't need to hear just another maybe catchy outline or or good stories. That doesn't bring transformation. It's your word that does that. And so, Father, much like you spoke through that bush to that 80-year-old man on the dusty plains of Midian, so speak through me, your servant, to your people. Inspire us, encourage us, change us. God, I, I, I abdicate myself of any thought this morning. I, I'm, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't exist to convict people. I, that's your job. Lord God, you, you know in my own life I need to hear this. The temptations for greed are very real, and I feel them profoundly. So, Lord God, would you walk the aisles this morning? Would you speak? Would you propel new waves of generosity in everyone here today? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Scottsdale Bible, this passage is a doozy. It it, it presents us with an incredibly theological challenge because just at a cursory reading, it seems as if Jesus is preaching work salvation, doesn't it? It it seems to me that you listen to this sermon with no explanation. Jesus just unleashes these words. It seems to me if I'm in the crowd, I'm going to be tempted to leave thinking, okay, I've got to work my way into the kingdom by finding all the poor people I can and giving as much money away. It seems as if Jesus is preaching works salvation. So we've got to thread this needle very carefully this morning. And so I need to to do something this morning that Jesus did not do in his own sermon. I I want to explain his words. Uh, We need to understand, I I, I teach a a class, it's called hermeneutics at a local uh, Bible college in town. Hermeneutics, just big term, simply means the uh, art and science of biblical interpretation. Uh, It's Bible study methods. And one of the things that we learn in that class is we never build and base a doctrine of Scripture from one passage, but instead we take our findings from that passage and we relate it to the whole. And one of the things that we're struck with as we read the tapestry of Scripture is that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. In Genesis chapter 15, for example, God comes to Abraham and it says this, Abraham believed God and it was accredited unto him as righteousness. He didn't go to the temple first, although they didn't have that. He didn't, he didn't change his language first. He didn't sell uh, his possessions first. He simply believed immediately. He, he's, he's declared righteous. That's the doctrine of justification. What's interesting about that Genesis 15 passage is in Genesis 15, he's declared righteous. He's saved. But it's not until Genesis 17 that Abraham is circumcised. So that even under the Old Testament paradigm, faith precedes works. Take the Passover event. 
God shows up and he says to the nation of Israel, you guys are out of here, but this last plague, it's going to impact you. Here's how you get out of it. Take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it over the doorposts of your home and the death angel will pass over you. That was a foreshadowing to the beauty of the new covenant when the ultimate spotless lamb would stretch out his arms, would die in our place and for our sins when all we have to do is by faith cling to the cross and we shall be saved. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Paul says it this way, that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait for us to stop smoking weed first. He didn't wait for us to kick the habit first. He didn't wait for us to stop the adulterous relationship first. But God looked down the corridors of time, saw us in the midst of our mess, and said, Christ, go die for him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, Let me take a page out of Spurgeon who said whenever he would preach, he would take his text and make a beeline for the cross. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus sees you in the midst of all your mess and he doesn't wait for you to kick the habit first. But he says, I'll take you just as you are. Or hear the words of the most profound writer on salvation by grace through faith. And that anthem for that doctrine, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we, we understand now when we drop Matthew 25, 31 to 46 in its proper theological context, this is not a message about works. But salvation is a mystery. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says to a group of religious people, guys, I can't let you into the kingdom. They say, why not? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all this wonderful stuff in your name? Jesus says, yes, you did, but depart from me. I never knew you. The great tragedy of hell is that hell will have many parking spaces filled with religious people who thought that just because they taught the Sunday school class, just because they gave some money, just because they came to church, just because they hung out in the environment, made them a Christian, that is as ridiculous as me standing in my garage thinks that that makes me a car. Hell will be filled with seminary professors, church-attending, scripture-quoting, Bible-toting, religious people who will hear Jesus say those horrific words, depart from me, I never knew you. Hear now the words of C.S. Lewis when he talks about the mystery of heaven. C.S. Lewis says that when we get to heaven, we will be surprised on two fronts. One, we will be surprised at who is there that we knew for sure wouldn't be there. And then we'll be surprised at who isn't there that we knew for sure would be there. Salvation is a mystery. So Brian, how do I know if I'm saved? How? Give me theologic justification. Give me some theological assurance that I am a believer, or as my grandmother would say, I'm sure enough saved. How do I know that? One word, fruit. 
a changed and changing life that no, is not the byproduct of the normal uh, maturation process of adulthood, but a changed and changing life that is directly related to the presence and power and working of the Spirit of God in me. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Uh, my old senior pastor, I don't mind sharing this with you. When I worked for him, he shared this one Sunday in front of 13,000 people. My old senior pastor said, when I first came to Christ, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. But now, since following Jesus, I don't cuss that fast anymore. <laughs> what is he saying here? He's saying two things. One is he's acknowledging, no, I am not all the way there. I haven't arrived. You catch me driving down I-10 and you cut me off. I may want to speak to you in sign language. I am not all the way there. But he's also saying, however... When I look through the rearview mirror journey with Jesus, I can also say I am not all the way where I once was. He is changing me. Scottsdale Bible, as you look in the rearview mirror, if you cannot say, I am a better person, not because I've matured, but because of the Jesus in me, you have no solid biblical justification that you are saved. As we come to our text this morning, one theologian says that Matthew 25, 31 to 46, if you get nothing else I say, get this. It doesn't deal with the root of salvation. I love what this theologian says. But that Matthew 25, 31 to 46 deals with the fruit of salvation. In, in other words, with that theological lens, we need to see Matthew 25, 31 to 46 this way. Genuinely redeemed people who have the blood of the Lamb coursing through their veins engage the less fortunate. A mark of genuine followers of Jesus Christ is they have turned their backs on the American way of greed. They engage the less fortunate. If Matthew 25, 31 to 46, hear these horrifying words. If this passage is not true of you in any kind of way, Jesus is saying to Brian Loritz this morning, and he's saying to us, you have no solid biblical foundation, but you are a follower of me. Okay, Brian, mission accomplished. I'm frightened. How, how can I cultivate, and I like, I'll use that word, how, how can I cultivate a Matthew 25, 31 to 46 heart? I've got 14 minutes here. How, how can I cultivate that? Two points. I think it was Wayne Grudem, actually, and I think he's here this morning, who said... That the Bible, maybe he said the law, is a transcript of God's heart. In other words, if we want to know the heartbeat of God, get to know his word. 
I, I read through the Bible about once every year, and uh, one year, I just remember off the bat being struck with how many verses I saw that uh, talked about God's heart for the alien, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the less fortunate. And, and I just began to write the initials, and you'll forgive the initials. I, I know this term is a bad one, but, but hear the spirit of it. I began to write the initials SJ every time I came across a verse that talked about the, God's heart for the poor, the widow, the alien, the less fortunate. When, when I got finished reading Revelation, I discovered... There are over 2,000 SJs in my Bible. Tracking with me? What is abundantly clear is that God cares profoundly about the less fortunate. I don't have time to read all 2,000 verses to you this morning. Let me just read about 500 or so uh, to you. (laughs) No, two or three. I'll read two or three. Uh, write down Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. Um, here, here is what God is saying to the nation of Israel. Hear it now. God says this, At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites and the aliens, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 8 says it this way. If there is a poor man among your brothers, hear it, in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather be, I love it, open-handed. Freely lend him whatever he needs. I, 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 I want you to get this. So here's the deal. God's talking to the nation of Israel as he's setting up their, their economy, which was an agrarian economy. They lived off the fruit of the land. One passage says this. God says to them, when you go to your fields, do not reap, God says, hear it, to the edges of your fields. Rather, God says, Leave margins in your fields for the poor to come and glean. I love this. I'm going to park here for a few moments. God's system of welfare was that if the poor want to eat, don't just give them a handout. If they want to eat, they can come to your fields and they can glean in that margin you've left them. By the way, that's how Boaz and Ruth meet. The New Testament principle of this, and FYI, I'm not, anti, I'm not anti-welfare. My mother grew up on welfare. I think welfare is good for some people for a season, but any system, that's why I agree with Newt Gingrich, any system that, that is about enablement and not empowerment is unbiblical. Cuts the legs out from under people. Send your emails to the elders here at the church. <laughs> So God says, leave margins in your field. I I, I think here's the New Covenant principle here at American Christian. I think God is saying to us, New Covenant principle, when we look at our budgets, we should leave margins in our budgets to spontaneously and generously give to the poor.
I'm doing doctoral work over at Oxford, and every time I'm over there, I always stop at Lincoln College because that's where um, a guy by the name of John Wesley went. To all of us, I'm sure, if we've been around the church for a while, you've heard of John Wesley. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist uh, uh, Church's Methodist Movement. Uh, when John Wesley was a college student, 19 years old or so, uh, John Wesley, he, he asked this question. He says, how much is enough for me? How much do I need to live off of this year? Uh, John Wesley sat down, prayed about it, thought about it. He says, I only need 28 pounds to live off of this year. Anything I, give over, anything I get over that, I will give away. That first year, he made 30 pounds, lived off the 28, gave the other two away. At the end of that year, he goes, hmm, I kind of like that. I think I'll stick with that for the rest of my life. If you know anything about John Wesley, one of the things you understand about him is there were years in which he made an incredible amount of money from the sale of what was then called his pamphlets. One year, I think he made around 1,500 pounds. But John Wesley says, 28 pounds are enough for me. Anything over 28 pounds, I'm giving away. Now, hear me, American Christian, because I really do believe that one thing American Christians do not genuinely wrestle with is the question of enough. Now, don't go legalistic on me. I love what Tom Nelson says down at Denton Bible. Christians would rather have a rule than to think. I think at the end of the day, we need to wrestle with what is enough for me. Good buddy of mine, pastor, pastors of 5,000 person church. He does well financially. He, he went over to Africa, was convicted by what he saw, came back home. He says, sweetheart, we've got too much house. I think they only had 2,800 square feet. I, I don't look at that as being exhorting. He says, we've got too much house. So here's what he does. He sells his house, moves out his four kids and two college students who are living with him. They're always committed to having two college students live with him. He buys four ca- he pays for cash for a 1,000 square foot house. And now every single month when he would normally make the mortgage payment on the old 2,800 square foot house, he takes that money and gives to the poor. Bill Hybels, well-documented story, was praying one morning. He was just saying, man, I need to do more for the less fortunate. God told him, this is what Bill Hybels talking, okay? Bill Hybels says, you know what? I just, the Lord impressed upon me. The next check I see, I need to give it all away. Now, I think he was expecting his normal paycheck or whatever because the next day when he walked in, a, a three royalty checks from his, uh, uh, from his book deals come in. One of them was to the tune of $75,000. Holy Spirit said, remember that prayer yesterday, buddy? gives it all away. My wife and I, there's a passage of scripture that just messes with me. Jesus Jesus says, watch out for greed. And it messes with me because why didn't Jesus say, watch out for adultery. Watch Watch out for murder. Watch, watch out for anger. The reason why he doesn't na- name those other sins is because we all know the line when we get there. Greed is one of those subtle sins that we typically don't realize we've crossed the line until we're well past it. So my wife and I, We've been talking about this for years. This year, we finally made the decision, okay, by no stretch of the imagination do we have a lot of money. But we, we, we're, just, we're just going down the line, and, and, and we're just saying, sweetheart, when we're on our deathbeds, we, we're, we're not going to be saying, gosh, I wish I would have remodeled that kitchen. <laughs> so this year, my, my wife and I said, 
enough. We're going to take the raises. Everything we get over this line here, enough. Have you contemplated that question? Again, I'm not getting legalistic. This message is not about not buying a new car. It's not about buying a certain house. Have you thought about the question enough? Enough. In the last five minutes that we have together, what does it take to cultivate a Matthew 25, 31 to 46 heart? Number one, I think it's just going to take a heart for God. As I read the scriptures, God cares profoundly over 2,000 times, over 2,000 verses for the poor. But secondly, I think it's going to take a profound heart for others, a profound heart for others. In order to understand this, we've got to go back to the garden. You guys, sound biblical teaching here, you understand this, that, that when God creates mankind, he makes us in his image. Regardless of our spiritual standing, we have been made in the image of God. And because of this, there's this universality, this community of humanity, that all of humanity has been made in the image of God. And because of that, all of humanity deserves the basic right of human dignity bestowed upon them. I'll never forget, I was 15 years old. My father and I were in Chicago. It was, it was winter. We're walking down Michigan Avenue, the main thoroughfare right there in Chicago. I'll never forget this. We're walking down the street, and there we see a homeless person huddled up against one of the buildings. He is inadequately dressed, sticking out a styrofoam cup. He's, he's shielding himself. I can see him right now uh, against the wind. He's sticking out a cup. I, I walk by him. I'm going, this guy's going to take our money. He's going to shoot it up. He's going to get high. He's going to do something. My dad stops, drops money in the styrofoam cup, catches up to me with tears in my father's eyes. I see them right now. He grabs my arm, arrests my attention, gets me to look back at that man I just passed. He says, son, I want you to look at him. That man is someone's child. Some woman birthed him. At some point, he had an address. And what my dad was saying was that that woman holding that sign saying, we'll work for food at some busy intersection, that's not some nameless person. That, that's my sister, that single mom struggling to try to make ends meet, working three jobs, doing, coming home real quick, dog tired, trying to cook dinner and helping the kids with homework. That's not some nameless person. She's my sister. And while my nine-year-old kid wants Madden 2011, what will I do for them? I, 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 I want to read you this story. It's, it's a well-known story. I've got uh, just under two minutes left to go. Um, it's, it's by Tony Campolo. I'm sure you've heard it before. Um, let me footnote Tony Campolo's stories. He was once asked the question after telling one of his famous stories um, if, if it was true. And his response was, well, um, if it's not, it should be. So um, I, I'm guessing this is true. If, if it's not, it should be. This is what he says. He talks about um, being, Tony Campolo is a preacher, sociologist from Philadelphia. He's in Hawaii. He talks about being, struggling with the time change. Uh, it's the middle of the night. He goes out to get something to eat. Listen to what he says. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter and waited to be served. This is one of those uh, sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I didn't even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would 
crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. Now, this is his words. He says this. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I told him a cup of coffee and a donut. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get, to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman next to me. Why, why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you, why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't, I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? Tony says, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left, and I called over the fat guy behind the counter, and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said. That's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. I told him, what do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. Uh, the woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15 that morning, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. <laughs> it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready, and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang Happy Birthday to her. As we came to the end of singing, Happy Birthday, dear Agnes, Happy Birthday to you, her eyes moistened. And when the birthday cake with all the candles lit on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles myself. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I... I mean, is it okay if I kind of... What I want to ask you is... Is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want. Can I, she asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home and show it to my mother, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? <laughs> Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a preacher to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes, I prayed for her salvation, I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a, a moment, then he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. 
If there was, I'd join it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. God, what we've just talked about today is not a political issue, and so I, I do pray that no one would mishear that. It's a kingdom issue. God, you know my own profound struggles. I feel the tugs of greed and materialism every day of my life. God, you don't call us to be balanced. Any Christian who's balanced in all things will be radical in no thing. You call us to be radical. May we radically follow you. Follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brian. Thank you, my dear friend. They want to say thank you to you. Thank you. We all have wheat fields. And he said to leave a margin along the side for the poor. And now we have a chance to hand some of that over to them. We're gonna take up an offering right now. The elders offering is brought in. Uh, we take it one uh, Sunday a month to help us for the many people that come our way to our church in, in special need and we wanna come alongside them financially. And we have ways of making sure we're helping them, uh, giving them a hand up and not just a handout. We're very conscientious about that, but we need the funds to do that. So uh, as, they, as the musicians uh, play for us and sing, uh, will you uh, ask God how you can help today? And they're going to come alongside with the, uh, with the offering plates. Thank you, Lord.
God bless you. Have a great day, and we'll see you next Sunday.